Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Today we have an interview with Tom Holland, author of In the Shadow of the Sword. If this interview whets your appetite to hear more, then visit audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to pick up the audiobook for free. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 57, Why Did the Arabs Win? Part 2, Tom Holland. As promised, today we have an interview with Tom Holland. I think many of you know who he is. He's both a novelist and historian, and his book Rubicon not only won prizes, but was quoted by Dan Carlin during his podcasts on the Roman Republic. Tom has also written books on the famous war between the Greeks and Persians, as well as Millennium, which is a book about the year 1000 and the forging of Christendom. And those are only the history books. He has novels available too. I've talked about Tom before when I made In the Shadow of the Sword my Audible.com recommendation, and I mentioned his amazing narrative style. He's very adept at making historical fact sound like flowing fiction. Now, before I play the interview, I think there are a few things we should establish at the start. Tom really dives into the book's thesis pretty quickly, and for those who know nothing about it, here are some things that might help. Although we do talk about the Quran quite a bit in the interview, I think I should just uh, add a little. I didn't mention the Quran in the previous episode when I talked about our sources for Islamic history. Unlike the biographies and the hadiths, the Quran clearly existed in some form during the 600s. As you can imagine, there is much debate about exactly when it reached the form we have it today. But unlike the Gospels of Jesus, the Quran is not written as a narrative. It doesn't say, Muhammad did this or Muhammad did that. Instead, it's a collection of things which Muhammad said, so it's more like a disconnected group of thoughts and stories without specific described contexts. As Tom talks about in the interview, at the same time that the biographies and hadiths were written, so came commentaries on what each part of the Quran really meant. In the Shadow of the Sword is very much in the sceptical vein of Western critiques of the Islamic tradition. So when the interview begins, Tom is going to immediately begin 
from the point of view that all of the stories about Muhammad are a construct of later times. He is going to refer to Muhammad as being legendary. He's going to dismiss the idea that Islam as a faith actually existed the way we think of it during much of the 600s. This might all be shocking stuff to you. Obviously, Tom is just summarizing the analysis from the book, so you need to read what he says there if you want to hear more of his reasoning. Uh, also, I don't present this interview as the point of view of the history of Byzantium. I present it as a fascinating example of how some scholars today now perceive the origins of Islam. And this all leads me to ask him, how did the Arab armies win? I will be back after the interview. And uh, Tom began by talking about what first drew him to the subject, which, like many of us, was to follow up study of the fall of the Western Roman Empire by examining what happened in the East. Uh, I was very interested in the process by which um, the Roman Empire in the West splintered and ended up becoming the various barbarian kingdoms and the process about whether it was a sudden process of collapse, whether the barbarians were the agents, all those kind of issues that um, everyone who studies that period is thoroughly familiar with. Um, and it seemed clear to me, without particularly knowing very much about the background, that the same process must be going on in the East and wouldn't it be interesting to look at it from that perspective, so very much as you're doing from the Roman perspective. Um, and I had assumed from what I had read about the origins of Islam and the life of Muhammad that there would be substantial amounts of source material relating to that perspective. And it was when I started reading the, um, the biographies of Muhammad and the early histories of the um, Arab conquests, all of which I then discovered were written often centuries after the events that they were describing, and they simply bore no relation at all to the geopolitical <laughs> setup that I knew must have existed. But I started yeah. wondering, well, actually, I'm not entirely convinced that this traditional account is very useful. And the, I suppose the comparison that leapt out at me was with um, the stories that emerged to explain how the, the Roman province of Britannia became England. Um, whether that was Bede's account, with, uh, you know, and all the, everyone accepts the tendentious qualities of Bede's account of, of how England evolved. I mean, to a degree, Bede invents England. Um, but I suppose the other parallel also is with um, King Arthur, who likewise is cast as someone who emerges from the twilight zone of Roman power um, and he is seen as a warrior who is also the incarnation of God's will. Um, and he gathers around him companions who perform great deeds. Um, and it came to seem to me increasingly that the, the, the collapse of Roman power, the implosion of this centuries old political order had been so seismic that wherever it had happened from Britain to Arabia, it had generated myths that to this very day continue to serve people. Very interesting. Now, I think um, your average listener to the podcast will be thinking, okay, now, if I know nothing about Islam, I will think to myself, the Quran, 
you know surely the quran is 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 the gospel of islam that would be the equivalent surely i would look there to find information on muhammad and the origins of islam what what happens when we examine the quran from a well, historian's point of view uh first of all it's important to recognize that the quran isn't really the equivalent of the bible um the Quran is, is, if you need to compare it to anything within Christianity, the, the comparison would be with the figure of Christ himself, who for Christians is the embodiment of the divine that enters the diurnal, the earthly realm. Uh, likewise, the Quran is the word of God far more powerfully than the Bible is. Um, Christians may believe that the Bible is the word of God, but they also accept that it has been mediated by human agency. So that's why there are four Gospels. That's why there's an Old and a New Testament written at different times by different people. Um, and it's also why the Bible is often narrative based. So it tells you the story of the prophets. It tells you the story of the Messiah. And those stories are placed within contexts that historians can recognize. Um, there are geographical places that we know where they are. We know where Jerusalem is. We know where Babylon is and so on. Um, and there are historical figures that likewise we can place. So you get mentions of Tiberius, of Augustus, of Alexander, of Cyrus. Um, so it is possible to use the Bible as a historical text, as a source. Uh, with the Quran, it's very different. Um, just as in Islam, there is... Um, an intolerance of um, visual art, of, of, of sorry, of figurative art. So likewise in the Quran, there seems to be um, a mistrust of narrative. And I suspect that the reason for that is that, it, that, that just as, as representation puts a limit on the power of God, it, it, it enables humans to arrogate the powers of God. So likewise, narrative um, serves to imprison the infinite power of the divine. And so therefore, although there are echoes and traces of biblical stories within the Quran, they are abstracted. Um, they are the, the, the sense of narrative is dissolved and distorted. So the consequence of that is that not only is there very little narrative, um, there is also very little contextualization. So there is only, for instance, in contrast to the patent uh, contextualization that you get in the gospels that place it very decisively in the reign of given roman emperors under the governorship of certain you know the, the, you get the names of syrian governors you get the name of, of, of procurators of judea you know where and when you are in the quran you don't get that there's only one mention of a geopolitical entity which is the romans it describes their defeat in a nearby land which most people myself included would take to be a reference to the defeat of um Roman forces in Syria and Palestine um, by the Persians in the Great War that ultimately they lose to Heraclius. Um, but on top of that, and even more frustratingly, uh, there's also very little geographical contextualization. There are, in fact, nine places that are mentioned in the Quran. Of these one, we can pinpoint definitely, uh, and that's Yathrib, um, the future Medina, the city of the prophet. Um, other places we're not sure. One of them, for instance, is Sinai. Um, and this is at a point where numerous people are laying claim to Sinai. And although it's true that in the early 7th century, um, the place that most people would now associate with Sinai, the one that has St. Catherine's Monastery, is, is starting to um, establish its primacy. There are numerous candidates for Sinai. And that's a reminder that these places 
in antiquity, particularly in late antiquity, in this period, these places of pilgrimage, these places that get mentioned in scripture, if they're not firmly located, they're up for grabs and people have a, an interest and a stake in, in, in locating their own place with it, because that then means pilgrimage and all kinds of things. So the key for that is that there is only one mention of a place called Mecca and Mecca within the Quran, this one, this one reference, it's not clear what it's referring to. It's not clear that it's referring to a prosperous trading city as is conventionally, as Mecca is conventionally represented in the biographies of Muhammad. It could be, it could be that, but it could equally be a village or it could be a valley. And it's absolutely not clear from the context and from the Quran itself that Mecca, this place Mecca, is located within the Hijaz, the traditional place from which Muhammad comes. So if you look at the Quran and you know nothing about it, you don't know the cladding of, of biography and explanation that traditionally has surrounded it, it's very it's not immediately clear that it is coming from the context that the Muslim tradition says it is coming from. And so that makes it a very, very difficult source to use. It's very interesting. And I think some people may know very little about the Quran. So um, if they're expecting it to have stories, you know, Muhammad went here, Muhammad did this. No, there is none. There no, is none of that at all. And, there, and indeed, it is so difficult to make sense of that. Far from uh, needing to know the life of Muhammad so that you can understand it, it's almost, I think, the other way around in that we start to get the life of Muhammad at the same time as we start to get um, Muslim texts explaining what is in the Quran. And it seems that the life of Muhammad evolves to explain things within the Quran that otherwise are inexplicable. So... For instance, there is a description of someone hiding in a cave and lo and behold, in the biography of Muhammad, you have an account of Muhammad hiding in a cave. There is huge concern within the Quran about justice being done to orphans. And so lo and behold, in the traditional story, Muhammad is an orphan. And the best parallel that I can think of um, would be with the way in the 18th and 19th century that romantic traditions of biography interpreted Shakespeare's life and constructed Shakespeare's life in terms of um, material that they found in the sonnets and in the plays. So you, you, we don't know very much about Shakespeare. He is the author of these great plays. He's become this kind of national bard. We want to know more about him. And so this whole story has evolved in which he has a relationship with a dark lady and he has a run-in with a rival poet and he doesn't like his uncle, all of which is extrapolated from the written material and which scholars now would be far more, you know, they would doubt that that actually reflects the real Shakespeare. Yeah. And so likewise, I think that um, that the details of Muhammad's life tell us actually that people who were writing it didn't really know very much about him. It sounds paradoxical, but they are constructing it to explain stuff within the Quran that they simply don't understand. And they are also, interestingly, they are constructing it because a further complication within the Quran is that like very like the bible but problematically if you think that the quran is literally the word of god um it's full of contradictions and so as a result muslim scholars develop a notion that they call abrogation whereby the earlier a verse is received supposedly by the prophet um the less definitive it is and the later a verse the more decisive that is um and so, therefore, the, the question of, where, of when exactly these various verses were delivered to the prophet becomes theologically incredibly important. And so, as a result, the details of, 
the life of Muhammad is not just biography. It's about trying to explain which verses in the Quran have primacy over other ones. Interesting. And we should probably place some of this work in in the historical context where we are in the history of Byzantium narrative is 700 and and Abd al-Malik is now the caliph having emerged from the second large civil war Uh, are you able to talk about how those civil wars have affected uh, the collection of biographies that grew up because up till about 700 uh, these biographies did not exist. These stories were not written down well, in any form that we still have. It's later. It's about 800. But you're right to fix on Abdul Malik because he is the key figure. He is St. Paul to a degree in that he seems to be the... Per- uh, he, the, the thing is, we, we know that someone called Muhammad existed. He he is referred to in various Christian texts. Who, for in, One that seems to be contemporary with Muhammad, for instance, 634, describes a prophet of the Saracens leading an invasion of Palestine. Now, the problem with that is that um, Muhammad, according to traditional biography, dies in 632. So immediately you see there a kind of tension. From, from then on, you, you get various references to a general of the, of the Arabs, a king, a warlord, who is called Muhammad, mentioned by various Christian um, monks, historians, bishops, whatever. Um, and it, 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 it bears some approximation to the traditional Muslim account, but there are also severe gaps and contradictions. This early Muhammad seems to be much more Jewish than Christian, for instance. Um, But then he fades from the scene. And what happens is that that the Arab Empire, and it's important, I think, to think of it as an Arab rather than a Muslim empire, because there's no evidence from contemporary sources that anything that we would recognize as Islam exists at this point. Um, The various Arab warlords who have carved out this this, um, empire from, from chunks of the Roman Empire and pretty much swallowed the whole of the Persian Empire, um, they start to fight among one another. And it seems that the basis for this territorial squabble, at least if we uh, trust the um, contemporaneous chroniclers, that the basis for this struggle reflects um, the much older division between the Lachmids and the Ghassanids, who I'm sure you've talked about earlier, who are basically the Arab mercenaries who are employed respectively by the Romans and by the Persians. Um, and Ali, who is the, um, the fourth caliph, according to Muslim tradition and according to Shiite tradition, he is the one who should have been the first caliph. He, he was a great hero of Shiism. He is the um, heir of the Ghassanids. He is described as the emir of Hira. In, in and Muawiyah, an Umayyad Arab, who, according to even the traditional Muslim accounts, had territories within Roman Syria and Palestine, which is something that's clearly impossible if he's from Mecca. So it seems that he, he has a power base that is within Syria, and he uses that to establish his control over what had been Lachmid territory. And it seems that the, 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 the battle between them results in the Umayyad supremacy, so based in Syria, it's a Roman, it basically the, the Roman side wins over the Persian side. Then there is, Muawiyah is very successful, um, but when he dies, 
And I should add furthermore that there is no evidence at all that Muawiyah is Muslim. He is described as being hailed in Jerusalem. He goes on pilgrimage around Christian sites. He is wide, he is hailed by Christian chroniclers at the time as being essentially Christian. We don't know. I mean, we don't know really what he's up to, but it, it, it's not at all apparent that he is Muslim in the sense that we would describe it now. Mm. But but um, when he dies, you have this um, implosion again, the scrapping over the uh, over the remains of it, which. Um, is commemorated by Shias to this day. This is the Battle of Karbala, um, and uh, the Umayyads are cast as the great villain in this. But essentially, it's a, you know it's a civil war. It's a, it's a scrapping over the over the spoils. But out of that bout of civil war emerges another Umayyad, a sort of relative of Muawiyah, Marwanid, son of Marwan, Abdul Malik, and what he his power base is within Syria, and he's up against rivals who are based in Arabia and the supporters of, of the the enemies of Abdul Malik coin they 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 issue a coin that refers to Muhammad as the prophet of God and this is the first mention within Arabic on a public inscription of Muhammad as a prophet and Abdul Malik responds by building the dome of the rock and by putting what seemed to be Quranic verses, and I say seem to be because they're not exactly reproduced, and they say so they may be distortions of the the original Quran. It may be that the, the Quranic text hasn't been absolutely fixed, but nevertheless there is a mention of Muhammad on the dome of the rock as well. And it seems that what what is going on is that both sides in the civil war have recognised that Muhammad, with this prophetic status that many Arabs seem to have acknowledged, even though the memory of it had been fading provided both sides with a justification for what they were doing. And so it ends up that whoever Caesar's control of Muhammad can essentially justify themselves as the deputy of God, uh, the caliph, the caliph, the, the caliph. And Abdul Malik wins. And it's from his reign that pretty much everything that we would recognize as being canonically Islamic starts to emerge so for instance uh the kind of architecture that you get in the dome of the rock which will evolve to become uh the mosques um abstraction the lack of images um emphasis on the on the uh text of scripture um and iconic images so the coinage which both in in uh, persian and roman territories had basically copied the forms, so you've got Roman emperor's heads and assassinate heads on the coins. These go and you start to get merely, you get you get uh, lettering and abstraction. Um, and Arabic gets instituted across the empire as the language um, of the ruling classes. And it's from that point on, really, that Islam is starts to be established as an imperial religion, the religion of uh, conquering people. So Abdul Malik is, is St. Paul, but he's also Constantine. And I think it makes sense to think of him at least as much of Muhammad as the founder of Islam, because it's really with him that it gets established as something that is the dominant ideology of this vast empire and it will evolve. But what then happens over the course of the 8th century is that 
the, the sort of the, the, the caliphal model of Islam, the autocratic one, the one that enshrines the, the, the caliph as the deputy of God, as a figure who is comparable in status to Muhammad, starts to be undermined by um, lawyers and doctors and scholars who emerge from this sort of bubbling cauldron of various elements that you get particularly in Iraq. Um, and you get Christian, you get Jewish, you get Zoroastrian elements, you get various heretical elements from all kinds. You get people who understand the Persian traditions, the Roman traditions. And what they're doing is they're bringing ingredients to this evolving stew and chucking it in. And out of that, they are forging um, a body of law that will serve to undermine the role of the caliph. And the way that they do this is to attribute their various traditions that they are bringing to the figure of Muhammad in his lifetime in the desert. And to do that, they have to remove Muhammad as far as possible from the context of the late antique Levant. And they push him out into the desert. And by doing that, they are able to ensure that you know, Jewish laws and Zoroastrian dental hygiene codes and all this kind of stuff ends up being accepted as authentically Islamic. And so throughout the 8th century, you have a battle going on between the lawyers and the autocrat. Um, and it's out of that creative tension that all the glories of Islam emerge. And it's only really by the beginning of the ninth century that that stasis has been attained and an understanding of Muhammad, an understanding of the Quran, an understanding of the Sunnah, the, the, the law has evolved sufficiently that people no longer feel the need to to sort of rip it up and, 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 and start again. It's by the ninth century that you've got Islam as we would recognize it, but it's a long and gradual process. Well, going back to the question we are dealing with uh, in the in the podcast, which is why were the Arabs able to emerge victorious? Um, would you be able to talk uh, briefly about that? I mean, I think you've already hinted at it, which is that rather than people deep in Arabia um, it, advancing hundreds of miles north, it's possible that the Arabs who first invaded were actually located on the doorstep yeah. of, of Palestine. Well, I, think, I, I mean, I think there are two, you know, the, the, ever since um, civilization evolved in the Fertile Crescent, the question of how to deal with the nomads who live out in the desert have, has been a problem. And you see it. You know, the Syrians have the problem, the Romans have the problem, endless. But throughout that period, throughout the whole, you know, all the thousands of years, the one rule of thumb has been that um, the Arabs lack the numbers to overwhelm the population of the settled uh, territories in the Fertile Crescent. Now, what happens in the 6th and 7th centuries to change that? The first one, obviously, I think, is the plague. Um, the full scale of that, we, we don't know. It's still up for grabs, but it does seem increasingly the more that, that scholars, both historians and medical scholars, examine it, the more lethal it seems to have been in its effects. And we know that it has an impact both in terms of the forces that are available for the Romans to command, but also in terms of the, the tax revenues that they have to pay for these. And so increasingly... The defense of Syria and Palestine gets um, given to the Arabs who inhabit the border and who, because they live out in the desert, are that much further protected from the onslaught of the plague. 
Um, then, of course, in the beginning of the seventh century, you have um, the the great war between Persia and the Romans. Um, and I think that the devastating impact of that is immense. Um, it shatters the presumption of Roman greatness and Roman supremacy. And even though Heraclius wins, there is a, when you know when 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 in in history books of this period you read that um, the Romans lost the Battle of Yarmouk. Who are the Romans? I mean, you know, it's not legions, obviously, it's not. But who is it? Who are the the Romans? Um, because essentially, after the Persian War, even though the Persians withdraw from the provinces that they'd occupied, the the Romans going back in are akin to the French going back into Vietnam after the Second World War. They've had their prestige shattered and there are, there are clearly forces around who have won, who, who are more suited to the, this new era than to the returning Roman forces. And I think that essentially what happens in Syria and Palestine is that there is um, there is a battle between rival Arab factions as to who is going to be the dominant power. And there is a faction that is loyal to the Romans, and they basically are the ones who are fighting on the Roman side at Yarmouk. And there is another one that is clearly motivated by whatever it is that Mohammed has been teaching them. Um, although I, I, I'm sure that they're not, you know, that there are lots of people fighting on that side who are who are there because there is prospects for loot for expansion, who were not particularly religiously motivated. Um, and essentially, the Romans are collateral damage in this faction fight between rival factions of Arabs. It's a sort of humiliating way for Roman power in Palestine and Syria to end. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's, that's a far more likelier explanation of what happened than the traditional account that you get from Muslim historians in which it has to be said there is, you know, um, the Romans and the Persians pretty much play the role of straw men. They're, they're set up to serve as, as um, object lessons of, of arrogance and, and, and stupidity to be humbled by the warriors of God. Uh, they have a purely theological function. There is no attempt whatsoever to um, explain in, you know, the historical context of what's going on. And I think, again, the reason for that is that they, by the time these histories come to be written, they just haven't Laban can remember them. <laughs> and and do you think in that sense perhaps victory then brings recruits and more people to the side of the Arabs yeah. so that they they then kind of snowball into yeah. more and more victories? I think um that there is a kind of natural unity to the fertile crescent that and that that unity had been severed by the division between the Roman and first the Persian, first the Parthian and then the Sasanian empires. But it would, once that, once the Fertile Crescent had been united under a, under a unitary power, and of course that was also what was at stake in the sort of the two civil war, Arab civil wars, was whether, you know, the, the Ghassanids and the Lakhmid um, inheritor empires would, would, would fragment permanently or whether they would be joined together um and there is a kind of a natural drive there which you see i mean you you see now as going on at the very moment with the islamic state trying to establish itself in syria and iraq um it's mm -hmm. the same kind of process 
And I think that once the Fertile Crescent has been united under a unitary power, the wealth and the the wealth and the numbers that are there are so huge that they are able to use them to uh, swallow up the very mountainous and difficult terrain of Iran. I think that, you know, the Persians are so shattered and demoralized that even with all the, um, the Zagros and all the various other mountains that they should have been able to hold out in, they, they, they're unable to. Um, and the Romans only cling on to Asia Minor by the skin of their teeth and, and even to Constantinople by the skin of their teeth. Um, essentially, by seizing the centre of the world, the Middle East, the Near East, um, the Arabs have, you know, have, have taken advantage of this freakish circumstances of events. To and they had always been despised. They'd always been people on the periphery, and they had established themselves in the great cities of these ancient empires. And so, unsurprisingly. They, they, you know, what's the explanation for this? Well, it has to be the hand of God. Hmm. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I'm going to have to direct listeners to the book uh, to find out more. But can I ask you one last question, um, which has come in from a listener, I mean, directed at me, but much better that you answer it, which is how helpful is being able to read Greek to understanding Byzantine history and perhaps we should just expand that to how helpful is it to you when you're writing your books to be able to read texts in their original languages um, it's incredibly <laughs> incredibly useful to be able to read um, texts in their original languages and it's very I find it much easier to write about Byzantium than I do the Arabs because I don't read Arabic um, and I think that had it turned out that the Arab sources, so the Arab histories, the Arab biographies were central to an understanding of what happened in the early 7th century. I'm not sure whether I would have been able to do it. But since I don't think that that, that I, there are actually very few Arabic sources that date from the 7th and in even the 8th century, um, I was just about able to get by by employing a native Arab-speaking Syriac postdoctoral student. Um, absolutely essential to have that. Um, but I wish that I had Arabic. I wish I had Syriac. I wish I had Coptic. I wish I had Armenian. I wish I had Persian. I wish I had Hebrew. Um, all of which are necessary, really, to write the history of this period, which is probably one of the reasons why not many histories of it get written. <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, as I said in my introduction, check out uh, In the Shadow of the Sword to find out more. It's an absolutely fantastic book. Tom, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. So that's the interview. Now, Tom dropped a number of bombs there, which would have shocked me if I hadn't done the research I have. Muhammad seeming Jewish, Muawiyah seeming Christian, questioning Mecca as the origin of the movement, Abd al-Malik, our caliph in 700 AD when we left Justinian II, uh, as the potential Constantine of Islam. Those are the kind of ideas that I will explore in the sale episode, which is coming soon. I'll explain how those theories have come about and explore the evidence that exists to support them. So, if you got lost 
with where Tom was going with those theories, hopefully I can help uh, when it comes to that podcast. But meanwhile, Tom's argument about the Arab tribes breaking through due to the plague and Heraclius and Khusro II's war weakening the empires, well, that should put us back on more familiar ground and help answer your questions uh, when I come back with part three of Why Did the Arabs Win? Finally, if you are interested in hearing In the Shadow of the Sword in audiobook form, then you can get it free along with a month's trial of Audible service if you visit audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 